Hey, while you are still standing, uh, we are going to use this moment to, to reflect. Uh, quite often at Church of the City, we are looking for ways as a gathered community of people to be in the same space and yet um, still be connected with Jesus. And that's, that's a really challenging interplay if you think about it. We're constantly in touch with the world around us just via our body. It's constantly a part of this world. So one of the things that we've adopted as a, uh, a new tradition among the church community is taking moments of silence, uh, moments to be as, as still and quiet as possible. And the goal here, the intent here, is a, an attempt to not divorce ourselves from the world around us or our life or our experiences, but to heighten our awareness of the God who created us and the God who is with us. That God has chosen to come and be among humanity. And, and that didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. It exists in the here and the now and the present. And so there's something to this whole thing of taking time to reorient ourselves to Jesus of, Na- of Nazareth. Now, some traditions uh, to, to really signify uh, this welcoming of God will light a candle. Uh, this morning, we errantly didn't light the candles on the table at the front of the venue. And it works out so well. Because it is a long-standing tradition uh, as a symbol of God's presence, of His Holy Spirit joining us and for us to, to attend to it. So I'm going to ask you to stand this morning where you are and to do your absolute best uh, for the next 60 seconds to find some silence uh, inside of your soul, inside of your mind. Um, I realize our building's not quiet, the city is not quiet, your stomach probably isn't quiet, but we can still search and look for this oriented posture towards Jesus. So if you would, 60 seconds. Admittedly, God, our souls don't find rest very easily. Oftentimes our bodies don't either. And so in these moments uh, where we will ourselves into something that's quieter and slower, God, uh, it's not an exercise in futility. At least we don't, we don't believe that to be the case. We, we are expectant and hopeful that you are the God who continues to do what you've always done, and that's to show up, to be present, to be among us, to put on flesh and bones, and walk in the dust of humanity. And so, God, this morning, as we orient life to you, we're, we're looking for more of you. We're looking for more of your direction, more of your love, more of your guidance, more of your hope. God, help us in that direction. We love you. Pray in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, my name is Russell. I am the teaching pastor here at Church of the City. And I'm, I'm really grateful to be with you this morning. Um, as is the case, uh, it's always just beautiful to not show up and be alone anywhere, let alone um, among people who are on similar journeys trying to figure out what God's up to, what humanity is like, who we are in light of all of that. And so I'm grateful to be with you this morning. So thank you. If you're brand new this morning, welcome. Uh, and if you would, all of you, at some point during uh, the next few moments, would you fill out that white communication card, basic info um, just about you and about what's going on in your world and drop it in the offering at the end of the gathering. Uh, one thing I want to put in front of you, uh, almost literally, not at this moment, but as you leave and as you come in the building for the next few weeks, um, we are partnering uh, with a, uh, one of our ministry partners here in downtown Portland, the Union Gospel Mission, just to collect um, some cold weather gear for our neighbors who are living uh, rough uh, through the fall and through uh, this winter. And so you'll notice in the lobby on your way in and out, there's a, a big uh, barrel, uh, and, and on the barrel is a sign that has just essential needs. 
Um, and we as a church, um, we just want to be a part um, in, in ways that are meaningful and with partners that know what they're doing and know how to do it really well to love our neighbors as best we can. And so um, I just want to put in front of you that for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be collecting um, and on in through the fall as well. Um, Union Gospel Missions always uh, looking for these kinds of uh, items. It's sleeping bags, it's hats, it's coats, it's boots, things to, um, to equip people for. Uh, being outdoors for extended periods of time. So if you would, at some point, um, just check that out, think on it, pray on it. And if you've got good quality uh, used gear or want to go buy new gear, um, please, please, please engage with us as we love our neighbors as best as we can. Rest and silence. Those aren't words that um, are are easy for me to uh, move into action in my life, particularly um, I'm, I'm a quiet guy. In fact, I get uh, grief from our sound crew every single weekend that I don't talk loud enough into the microphone and people can't hear me. Um, I'm not a typically loud human being, but still, rest is not something that comes easy. Uh, last weekend was Memorial or Labor Day, and my wife and I, with our kids, left after church, drove to, to Seaside, where a friend of ours has a beach house. We spent the night there. We came back on Monday. And my wife asked me at the end of our, our little trip uh, if I had a good time, and I was like, no, I didn't. It's like, what do you mean you didn't have a good time? I said, well, um, it wasn't restful. I never got a spot to like decompress and like whatever. Like it takes the same amount of energy to go to the beach for 24 hours as it takes to go for five days. But I just didn't get the four days between where you get to rest. Um, and it feels like life is that way oftentimes. Like it's so fast and rushed that it's difficult to find rest. Uh, my senior year of high school, uh, I had two really close friends. Uh, the three of us were thick as thieves. Um, and we did everything together. And one of the things we decided to do was go on our senior trip. Um, and being outdoorsy kind of boys from eastern Washington, we decided our senior trip was going to be a camping trip. Um, so I, I don't think before this the three of us had ever camped together. Um, I grew up camping. Um, one of our other friends camped a little bit. And the third guy, I don't think he camped much at all in his life. To this day, he still doesn't like camping. We've taken camping one time, and he now has refused to ever go Again, at least till kids get older, because it's a real challenge with those kids. By the way, he did drop his baby while we were camping, so that's kind of on him that he doesn't like the experience. So the, um, I just have a habit now of like, ratting people out for things they've done. Anyway, so we're camping our, uh, for our senior trip, right? And, and it's just, like, we find this place um, in central Washington where I grew up camping constantly. So I know the area well. I've been there a lot. And we find this place um, to camp kind of rough, so we're away from a, like, camp zone where there's like latrines and stuff. So we're being boys, like we're doing things you shouldn't do in the woods, lighting things on fire that should never be lit on fire in the woods, being typical, um, very irresponsible young men. And, but one of the things I remember about this trip that stuck out to me was how um, we'd gotten to this, this place where we, we didn't see another soul for a few days. And I, I love that feeling. I love that experience. You probably had something like it before where you just find like solitude kind of by accident. And, and if something happens when you, when you kind of find that solitude, uh, there is a, a kind of decompression that happens to us as humans that rarely happens other places. And so we just found ourselves like really, really relaxed, really, really restful. And I remember um, that it, it really dawned on me one night when we were, we were laying in the tent. Now, three high school boys laying in the tent together, doing our absolute best to keep the minimum prerequisite four inches of space between us. Um, we, we, were, we were laying there, and it we've been talking constantly for days and all of a sudden like we weren't talking anymore but we were all awake and we're just listening to to what's happening in that moment and of course it's it's not you know perfectly quiet it's got some sound it's the sound of the woods so there's insects and different things and trees moving and all that 
But I remember being struck by how restful it was, how quiet it was, how, how this moment of rest uh, just kind of like happened to us. And then something happens when that is going on. Like you, you start like, coming to terms with some things about the way things are in the world. And, and things maybe you couldn't articulate prior to that begin to come up. And one of those things came up for us. So we were, we were laying there in the tent quietly. And as, as our like, minds are turning over and our souls are kind of turning over, one of the most important things that we said on the trip came up laying there that night. What happens if a bear attacks us? That thought had not crossed our minds until that moment. And I remember everything changing on the trip from being just kind of fun, willy-nilly guys doing things in the woods to outright fear laying in that tent. Because now my mind couldn't, couldn't go anywhere else other than that thing. That, that night was the night we were going to die. There would be a bear attack, and it would be three guys in the woods at the end of their senior year. We'd be in the news. That was going to be it. But the crazy thing about this mechanism, while that's silly, is that this is how we're built. This is something strange about the way we are. Now, that one's a bit strange and silly, but can you, can you think back to a time in your world where you found rest? I mean, real rest. Like, I mean, I've talked to some of you even this morning as you came in and you're like, you're going constantly. You can't, like right now is not the season, not the stretch of life where you've got any kind of rest. But can you, can you think of a time when you, you did find rest, where things were like maybe uber quiet? Uh, maybe that's another question to be asked. Can you remember a time when, when you were just in complete silence or maybe complete solitude? I remember one time um, I was a uh, junior high youth pastor uh, in Idaho. So one of the things you do as junior high youth pastor is you take your youth on river rafting trips. So you become a, kind of a pseudo river rafting guide. You think you're better than you are. You're really not that good at it, but you are trying to keep people alive in some decent uh, class three and four uh, white water. And so we, we decided to take a group of students down uh, the Snake River through Hell's Canyon. Hell's Canyon is the deepest canyon in North America. It's, it's a mile deep at the basin of it. Um, and the crazy thing about Hell's Canyon when you're inside of it is it is pitch black in the middle of the night. All you can see is the stripe of the Milky Way above the edge of the canyon walls. It's, it's this most surreal kind of thing. And the crazy thing about it, it gets even weirder, is it is really, really quiet. Uh, if you get a flat river spot, if you've camped along a flat spot in the river, um, the noise is just muted. Everything is subdued. That space for me is what I constantly revert to when I think about solitude and quietness. That's the image in my mind as I think about this concept. Now, this, this idea, this concept of, of silence and solitude um, is, is one of those concepts that, um, frankly, like I said to start with, is difficult because it's not active. It is inherently passive. Maybe it takes active energy to get to or think about or, or build life around to find something like that, but inherently it is, is a passive thing that happens to us. We, we, we stop doing, and we just only exist. We be. We're there in that moment. Now this idea, this concept, um, comes up quite often in, in the Psalms. Now we're, we're going through a series in the Psalms, and like I've been explaining, um, this 3,000-year-old um, anthology of poetry um, might feel quite distant, quite removed from us because it is a different world. It's a different set of humans in a different culture speaking a different language. But the reality is humans are humans are humans. We experience things that other humans have experienced for thousands of years. And our, 
our situation today, typically um, we, we tend to feel a bit arrogant about our achievements in life, our technological achievements, our societal achievements, things like democracy or capitalism or whatever you feel really proud about. We've, we tend to take those things and think somehow, some way we're better than generations prior to us. And the reality is that's just not true. The reality is humans are, are still dealing with the very same kinds of things that people were 3,000 years ago. So what we have in, in the Psalms is we have this, this like beautiful snapshot uh, when, when photography wasn't a thing, a beautiful snapshot through this, this artistic expression of poetry that helps us capture the experiences of humans who are dealing with life in those, in those times and that relate to, to life today. So what I want to do uh, to, to read our psalm this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 4. If you have a Bible, you can open your Bible to that, to that psalm. If you want to open your phone, do that. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. But I want, I want you to notice how this psalm starts, and we're going to do something super cheesy, and I'm super excited about it, actually. Um, in Psalm chapter 4, like many of the psalms, if you have a, like a print Bible or on your phone, the first line of the psalm doesn't look like a line of the psalm. It's, it's like, a, a, like a, uh, I don't know, like footnote or you know, prologue or, or just like introductory material. And oftentimes we like glaze right over it. But this psalm starts this way. And in Hebrew, this is the first line. This is verse 1. It says, For the director of music... With stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So this, again, this is character, this human being who is this king. Um, he's risen to great prominence in Israel, um, but he's also very poetic and very musical. And so he's one of the people who writes a lot of our psalms. Now, this line, we oftentimes would either not look at at all, or if we did look at it, we don't know what it means, and we move on. So this morning, what I want to do, uh, just experientially, um, is I'm going to have Brandon playing his guitar in the background, uh, a stringed instrument. Um, a few of these come up with wind instruments later. We're thinking about bagpipes for that one. Um, so be prepared for whatever, or I don't know, maybe something else, trumpet, trombone, recorder, who knows. Um, but the, the point here is this was intended to reach into our soul in a way um, through the apparatus of, of something like music. And so we don't know the tune. Uh, we don't know any of the, the, uh, the, the way this would move. So, so Brandon's going to fake it um, this morning um, and just use a string instrument in, in our time and our place. As I read this psalm, and as you experience what's being said here. Fair enough? Cool with that? You don't have a choice, so we're going to do it anyway. Psalm 4. Brandon? I think that's perfect. For the director of music, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin when you are on your beds. Search your hearts and be silent. Offer sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when, the gra- when, their, when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Brandon, thank you. You made that so much better than I could have. Round of applause for Brandon. Fantastic. I told you it'd be super cheesy, but I am so pumped that we got to do that. Here's why. 
I think oftentimes as we read the Psalms, what we, uh, what we do is we read something like that, we feel good about it, but we have no idea what we just read. Um, in fact, I would venture to guess if I asked you right now, maybe on some kind of exam, if I could give it to you, what is that Psalm about? You would blow bubbles right now and just be like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we read that. I heard some music. Russell's been talking about something for a little while, but I don't actually know what's going on here. Now, poetry for me is that way. Um, I struggle with this particular genre. Um, and it's not just poetry. Scripture is this way. Learning is that way for many of us. Um, and so to get at what's going on here, um, I want to look at a mechanism that the Hebrews use, that David uses here. I'm going to call it, um, by its non-technical term, a scripture sandwich. Tracking with me? Yeah, that caught your attention. Scripture sandwich. Some of you are hungry already and ready for lunch, I can tell. A scripture sandwich, um, the technical term is called chiastic structure, um, is, is a form of poetry, and it's a form of language use that uses repetition. If you recall last week, I won't make you do it again, um, I made the point that we think in lines, right? We, we are linear thinkers. Uh, we are post-enlightenment. That's the way our brains are wired. We like to think like things move forward, and we're on this trajectory towards something better. That's not how Hebrew minds work. Hebrew minds think more circular. There's motion to it, so think about a slinky, long and pulled out, and has motion, but there's this idea of repetition coming around as we, as we try to like, make sense of what's going on. And that's how Hebrews thought of life as well, that, that life was very circular, that we'd experience the same things over and over, and we'd deal with the same things maybe in a different way or with new circumstances, but the reality is there's only kind of a bound set of things we could actually experience. We're just going like, to get different angles to it. And that's hard for us as um, American post-enlightenment thinkers because we like to think we accomplish something and we get to move on from it. But even the structuring of language out of the Hebrews, it resembles this like this circular kind of concept. And that's what chiastic structure is. It's a sandwich. Think about a sandwich. A sandwich has some very essential pieces to it. It doesn't matter what kind of sandwich it is. It has something inside, typically two pieces of bread. Most basic sandwich you can think of, right? But you get good sandwiches, like something that's craft sandwich of some kind. My favorite um, from a place called Larry Hill Bistro. Um, turkey peach chutney sandwich. Fantastic sandwich. Um, can't rave enough about it. You can Google them right now, make plans. Go, go check them out this week. But it's the sandwich that has um, the perfect sourdough bread with a, a really generous portion of turkey right in the middle of it. And then on either side of the turkey, it has uh, lettuce and, and tomato on one side and mayonnaise and chutney, uh, peach chutney on the other. And the whole combination is just, is just ridiculously good. And it's good because of those layers, because it, it actually has complexity to it while being simple. Like, I can tell you what's on the sandwich. It's not that complicated. But it, it's, it's memorable because when it's all put together, there's something beautiful about the whole sandwich when you take a bite of it. Um, and so this, this concept of, of a sandwich resembles what's going on in these poetic sections sometimes, in these chiastic, chiastic structures the author is, is building for us this sandwich in an attempt to draw our attention to the center of it. Now, on a turkey peach chutney sandwich, um, some of you have chosen to liberate your lives of all meat goods. Fantastic. Well done for you. Um, but you're missing out on some of the best things in that sandwich if you do so. I mean, you could try to replace it with something, but essentially what's at the center of a sandwich without the turkey is just peach and chutney and some lettuce and mayonnaise and... Uh, tomato, and it's just not the same. The goal of this sandwich is ingesting the turkey with having this beautiful surround to it, okay? Track in with me? You're on my page. Fantastic. That's how this piece of scripture works. It's intended to be built, put together, and, and have this epicenter part, this piece that's like right there in the middle that you're like, that's why I got this sandwich. That's why this scripture 
makes sense. And this is what that author is driving at. So let me lay this out for you. And we're going to walk through this real quickly, but I, want, I just want to give you a taste of how this poetic section works. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to put um, one of the stanzas on the screen, and then I'm going to put the stanza that corresponds to it on the outside. So we're going to start with the bread, okay? And this is how this works. You start with the bread and you end with the bread. And that's structurally what it's doing. Um, and there's a comparison game here. So the first stanza says this, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Essentially what David is saying here is there's a problem. Something is wrong. Uh, we don't know what it is. Circumstances here are not divulged. We don't have any indicator that we actually um, can locate this in the lifespan of David, although he regularly is in distress. Um, that's just a, a regular feature of his life. And so what we have here is this, again, we talked about last week, you can go back and listen to it on, on the podcast, is we have this experience happening in one person's life that translates kind of in the broad sense into all of our lives, that we, we have these moments when life is just not easy or simple or going the direction that we want it to. And it's in that moment where David takes courage and he, he actually makes a demand of God here that's pretty provocative. Answer me when I call. I can't say that I've ever started a prayer that way uh, when I've been talking with God. I've, I've never demanded, listen to my voice and answer me. I, I'm, I'm in a spot of distress. I need something from you. And yet that's how David starts this. He's naming how, how difficult the situation is, and he's putting out in front that I need something from you. Answer me. Give me relief from this distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. So you get the sense here, right? Like it's like, He's in the spot, like something's wrong. He needs something from God. And that's the top layer of bread. But there's a corresponding piece of bread at the bottom of the psalm. And it says this, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, I've got these both on the screen for you. They're not identical. That's, that's right out front. Sometimes they are uh, in the way this works. These two are contrastive. These two are opposites. At the beginning, he's saying, I'm in distress, I need your help. At the bottom, he's saying, I have found it. I have found help. I have found rest. I have found what I was asking you for. In you, I find peace. Now, I lay that out in front of you because what, what's going on here is some kind of motion, some kind of change. Something has happened where, where from the beginning, David is in a spot of vulnerability and distress and he's help from God. And by the end, he's saying, I have found it. I have found peace and I found rest and it's solely in you, God. So the question is, what? What is it that's changed? Circumstantially, what's going on here? And to do that, we've got to go a layer in on the song. So look at stanza number two. David asks this question. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? Now notice something. There's a language changer. We don't do this in English often. In Hebrew, it happens all the time. But he actually changes who he's talking to without giving us any indicator of it. At first, he's talking to God, and he's saying, I need your help. And then he turns his attention and starts talking to other humans. And he says to them, how long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? That word false gods is also seek lies. How, how often and how long are you going to just be going after things that are deceptive and deluding you into thinking poorly about the way the world is? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself, the Lord hears when I call to him. Now, David's in this position where he's vulnerable, and we can infer a few ideas here. Chances are, uh, this is similar to last week's psalm, where people are opposed to him on some kind, some, some, some fashion. We don't know the circumstances again, but something's going on in his world 
where he feels like he's being opposed by other human beings. And he takes this, this posture, this position, kind of like in God's corner, right? Where he's like, God, I need your help, and now I'm going to talk to the people around me. How long will you guys put me down, basically? That's what he's saying. How long will you be opposed to me? How long will you seek lies? Don't you know that I am God's chosen person? Now, here's something that you have to hold on to. David technically was God's chosen person at this point in the world. If you recall, he was appointed by God to be king over God's people group, Israel. But we rewind that tape, and Israel has one purpose, one intentionality, and I've been trying to drill this into the way we think about Scripture. It'll clear back to the beginning of Israel when it's instituted to the very first human being, a guy by the name of Abraham. The blessing and covenant he makes with Abraham is fundamentally this. You can look it up in Genesis chapter 12. God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and in turn, your responsibility is to be a blessing to the whole world. So God has a part where he's taking care of Abraham, and then Abraham has his part where he's got to take care of the world. He's got to funnel that blessing to everybody else. Now, that's inherited in David and his call. When he's king of Israel, he's under the same set of stipulations. So he's in this position. I think he's being pretty honest here about how he feels about himself. I'm not convinced this is how God feels about him. He seems to be holding this position of being like, I'm better than you. I, I, am, I am God's anointed in Israel. I am the called one. Why aren't you listening to me, fundamentally, is what he's saying. Now, I, I, what I do appreciate about this is he's being brutally honest. When, when people are opposed to us, when things aren't going our way, when people in our workplace or our home life or whatever are, are at odds with us or we're at odds with them, quite often we feel like we're in the right. Now, I don't know how arguing goes in your life. Um, I know in my life, um, when I'm arguing, I have one rule and one rule only. I'm always right, and I always win. Ask my friends. Ask my wife. I, I have a hard time backing down in an argument. I have a hard time when I get face-to-face -face with someone believing that I could be wrong, that I could be the one who, who doesn't know what's going on. But the reality is, oftentimes, the case is I, I just don't. I just don't know what's going on, and I'm not right. I don't want to admit it. And I think something of that nature is happening with David here, where he's opposed to these people, and they are opposed to him, and he feels like he can just like hold himself up and, and say, I, sh I should be right here in this situation. Why are you causing me all of these problems? Well, look at the corresponding stanza, stanza number four. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. That line right there. Let me unpack it for you. It isn't David saying, I am the source of people's prosperity. And I am the one who, as God's anointed, is going to take care of all the needs of the people in Israel. He's actually doing the opposite. He is saying, people are asking who's going to take care of them. And the only person I can point to is God. See, in the front end, he's, he's kind of putting himself up there like, I am somebody. I am right in this argument. I am right in this opposition. I am the one who should be listened to by the other side. And by the stanza that corresponds with it, the inverse of that, the place he gets to, is it's God. It's God who is right. It's God who is the source of rightness and the source of prosperity. And he even comes to a spot of humility and he says, I want to find joy when the people who are opposed to me find prosperity, when their harvest comes in, 
I want to be able to be grateful and glad on their behalf. Again, exactly the opposite. Hugely contrasted. So we have this, this sandwich that's being built where on the outside David is in distress and he's opposed to God and by the end he's finding rest. And as you drill into the details of this, what we see is that David feels fairly proud about his position, about who he is and what's going on, and yet he has to admit he can't change it and he's not ultimately the one who is right. And right in the middle, right at the center, we get the meat of this particular chiastic structure of this scripture sandwich, so to speak. And it unlocks this whole scenario. Look closely at it with me. Verse 4. Tremble and do not sin when you are on your beds. Search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. See, the point of this psalm lands right there. That in the face of difficult times, in the face of things not going the way we want, when we're questioning God and we want to be right, we want the answers, we want to be the one and ultimately in control. The source of finding gratitude and grace for the other and the source of finding ultimate rest in our own souls is in verse 4. Is choosing to quiet our minds, our souls, our agendas and turn our attention to God, to his direction, to what he's doing in the situation, and to trust him in that moment. See, it's, it's ridiculously simple, actually, to say it, but it is tremendously difficult to put it into motion. Because ultimately what's going on in this psalm, what it's doing is it's pointing us towards, it's directing us towards a place where we are not in control of the situations of our life. And it's helping us recognize that there is one space and one place only where we will find the ultimate relief to the distress and difficulties in the relationships of the people around us that we have with those people. And that place is when we can focus again on God being the one who's ultimately in control and we're not. And trusting that he knows what he's doing even when we don't know what's going on, when we don't have the power to change things, when we can't change the minds of the people around us. See, the psalm, quite simply put, is trying to get us to stop trying to be in control of our own lives, to surrender that control and come to a spot of peace with God where we wait and we rest in Him, trusting that He knows better what life ought to look like than we do. And the outflow, the outcome of that is the other half of the sandwich, where we actually start to find joy in the success and the prosperity of the people we've been opposed to prior where we actually find ultimate rest and peace internally instead of being so distressed and so bent out of shape over the life circumstances the key the linchpin here is trust trusting god so i put it on the screen this way i want to want to walk through this with you just real simply just to make this abundantly clear maybe overly clear I want, I want to put this structure in front of you and, and just name how this works real quickly. Stanza number one, David is saying, answer me when I call. That's fundamentally what he wants. I want you, God, to listen to me. I want you to hear about my distress. But the opposition to that, the opposite version of that is he actually finds rest, that he rests in the safety of God. That's the bread of the sandwich. 
The next layer in is he's asking the question, how long will this last? How long will this distress be in its place? I am in a position where they should be listening to me. How long are they going to be opposed to me? And the opposite piece of that is he can actually say, to shine your face on us and fill us with joy when the prosperity of the other happens. Right at the center, the essential truth of this song. Search your heart while you rest in and trust God. Now, let's put pause there for a second. I, I, I'm, I was talking with Sarah, my, my teaching partner um, and our executive pastor here at Church of the City, um, this week about this. Um, the Psalms are, are really difficult uh, for multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is um, because they, they aren't other genres than what they are. They, they are poetry. Um, and I don't know if you know this about me, but in many cases, I'm emotionally detached from the world around me. Um, I really struggle finding the emotional energy to, to really uh, connect with the world around me. Uh, my closest friends, my wife, know that about me really well, and they know that when they do see me emotional, something typically is pretty wrong in my world. Well, the Psalms, they're intended to be experienced. They're intended to be, um, to, for us to, to engage them in a kind of way where they go with us, we participate with them, and they elicit both intellectual concepts and knowledge, but they also elicit something that's, that's deeper seated inside of our soul, something emotional, something connected to our heart. Now, the real challenge here is I'm limited in that capacity for two reasons. One, I struggle, like I just said, being emotionally attached to the world around me, but more importantly, I'm not inside of you. I'm not inside of your soul, your mind, your heart. You are. That's you. That's your space. And that's your space with God. And so I can't get inside and tweak and micromanage and try to like make you have some kind of response or emotional uh, connection to this kind of idea. And so quite typically, this idea would land on the intellect. It will land on our minds. Of course, I need to change my posture. I just need to trust God more. And then when we do that, quite often, that concept becomes trite, cliche, and loses all of its potency. And that's a problem. It's a problem of leaving this at the intellect. As I could say to you, man, Church of the City, I, I really want good things for you. Just trust God more. The things of, you know, adversity in your life and the challenge of your life, just submit those to God, rest in Him, pray a little bit, trust a little bit, and then things will be gravy. You'll be fine. And the reality is, yeah, we can say that. The truth, reality, is that that is tremendously difficult. And trust is one of those things that is not intellectually given from one person to another. Trust is something that is experienced. It's a decision that you have to make, that I have to make, concerning a relationship with the God who made us. So here's my fundamental question. Do you trust God, do you trust God? Now, if you know anything about me, if you've been around me at all, if you've been around this church at all, we are not trying to strong arm you into the right answer. I, I would have to say uh, that the, this question is a little bit of uh, a misleading question because it leaves a yes or no answer uh, at the end of it. The problem with a yes or no answer is Life and humans are far more complicated than yes or no answers. So maybe the question isn't, do you trust 
God. Maybe the question is, how much do you trust God? See, I think trust in the situations of life that we have is more of a spectrum than a light switch. That we have this spectrum of complete distrust of God and complete, absolute, unfailing trust of God. And at any moment, at any part of our day, in any situation, we land at different places on that spectrum. And that is safe for us to acknowledge and say. The reality is, the only place that I would say is highly dangerous is at this end of the spectrum where we can say with absolute certainty, I do not trust God at all. I mean, it's honest. Yes, own it. Say it. But the question that what the psalm is trying to do is it's trying to increase our trust of God in this experiential kind of way, relating to our real-life circumstances, relating to our marriages, relating to our friendships, relating to the way we treat our kids or our parents, relating to the way that we treat our, our housemates or the people who live in the house next to us or the apartment below us or the people we work with. This is an attempt by David to name the reality of being human that we've got trust issues. And that because we have trust issues, we assert our own control. And that we believe that we are better at controlling life circumstances than God is. And so we act on that impulse and on that belief over and over and over again. And this psalm is trying to unwedge us from that position and experience something different. To breathe in the end result here of finding peace with other people and finding peace with God. That ultimately that goodness, that end result motivates a different way of doing life. Here's it, here it is in brass tacks. Your life is hard. Your life is challenging. Your life has a lot of messy pieces to it. And those messy pieces continue to contribute to the pain and suffering you go through on a regular basis. You can't control all of them. Very few you, can you control. But where you can and how you can are hugely important. Where you can control it and how you control it matters. If you are trying to take life by the neck and make it go where you want to go, I'm just here to say, the pain you're experiencing now is only going to get worse. The outcomes of that kind of relationship with our lives, the outcome is just more pain. But David is suggesting here, he's moving us towards it, he's propelling in us, is an alternative. That maybe we need to slow down more. Maybe we need to find actual time on a watch with God to rest and wait in Him. To ask the question, how much am I trusting you, God? Am I the one in control of this, or am I letting you be in control? And then looking for answers. Looking for direction. Reading the scriptures. Praying. Talking with other people who are following Jesus well looking for guidance in places that are not your attempt simply to manhandle your own life. See, the psalm is intended to be experienced. It's intended to move us on that spectrum a little bit further away from completely distrusting God and closer to trusting Him. And a little bit further away from being our own master of our own universe and a little bit closer to acknowledging God being the master of the universe. And it's not rocket science. The suggestion is quite simple. Slow down. Be a bit quieter. And trust. Let's pray. God, today...
as we wrestle with ideas and concepts and experiences from an angle that is um, it's a little bit unique. God, my prayer, my hope is that as we, as we do engage your scriptures, as we let your Holy Spirit guide and shape and grow us, that God, you would be the one who points out the areas where we're not trusting you well. That you would be the one who would point out as we slow down, as we quiet our minds and quiet our souls and attend to you. God, you'd be the one who would point out places where we can surrender more, where we can trust you better, and ultimately where we can find the rest that we need, the peace internally that we crave, the peace we crave with our relationships around us, and God, ultimately peace with you. Jesus, these, these psalms are easy to glance over and difficult to get inside of. So God, I pray that you would give us an extra measure of understanding, of experience, and ultimately from the end, hope from our time spent with you and with your words. Thank you for David. Thank you for what he was going through 3,000 years ago. Uh, and thank you for the courage he had to name what was going on, who he was, and who you are. I love you, Jesus, and pray in your name.